reading, if you have your Bible, please Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 through the end of the chapter. Youth are now invited to join our youth ministry. Daniel is in the back. And Sonia, please feel free to follow them. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not oil on my head, but she has poured perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much." But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. In your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. I imagine that uh, most of us are very aware of what uh, today commemorates, what today is an anniversary of. You would, I think, have to be living We recognize today uh, the 10-year anniversary of uh, 9-11. And depending on how old you are, you either have a very clear recollection of that day or it's a a bit fuzzy, depending on where you were, how old you were, where you grew up. Um, This day maybe means something different to you, but certainly... In our country, this is a a significant day of of remembrance, and there's all kinds of ceremonies and services uh, to recollect uh, this day and those who perished uh, in the attack on the Twin Towers. Um, This week, as I was listening to the radio in our car, um, it was hard to escape talk about uh, this 10-year mark that we are at. And one commentator said something uh, interesting. It kind of stuck with me. He said that in the days following the attacks, uh, many of us, uh, and this was the word he used, 
cocooned. We, we turned in on ourselves. We pulled back. And, and what he was reflecting on was this, this idea that for, for many people, this was a, a realization that they as Americans, that we as Americans, were not safe. Now, that's not a new idea to plenty of Americans. But, but for some people, this was a wake-up call that to be an American is not necessarily to be safe from such devastating acts. And, and so he used this word, cocoon. He said, we, we in this moment, we, we pulled back. We turned in on ourselves. And there were a couple of repercussions he was reflecting on of, of this cocooning. One was that we began to distance ourselves from those who were different than us. Anybody who we didn't inherently trust became... Um, suspect. And we know how it plays out, how uh, certain people or groups of people then become, uh, again, suspect. He said the other thing that we uh, cocooned ourselves in this way is that we retreated into those safe communities that we had known, that were safe places for us, people who we knew and who knew us well. These communities begin to function, whether they were families or maybe nations or religions. These, these communities begin to serve to protect us, to insulate us. There wasn't necessarily a purpose beyond the community except for, well, the community's existence, the community's safety. In the, in the wake of something as 9-11, we can understand this cocooning tendency, this tendency to distrust someone who's different and to retreat into insular communities. We're starting this series today, as Ramelia mentioned, on hospitality, fearless hospitality. And I think this cocooning response, even in the wake of something so tragic, is maybe helpful for us as we think about hospitality. Because for, for many of us, I think hospitality, this word, this concept, is, is something we do in response to our circumstances. What do I mean? When we feel safe, when life is, 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 is somewhat predictable, we're more hospitable to other people. When life is stressful, when life doesn't feel like it's in our control, when we're not sure what tomorrow is going to bring, when we've lost a sense of safety in our life, we tend to be less hospitable. Are you, are you tracking with me? Our circumstances, we think, dictate our hospitality. Uh, this is not rocket science. You can imagine how this plays out in your life. You have more capacity to welcome, to greet, to invite, to be open to others when you feel like your life is in a good place. Hospitality in response to our circumstances, however, is not a biblical way for us to think about hospitality. Rather, hospitality for those of us who follow Jesus is a response not to our circumstances, but to God's presence among us. We don't, we don't choose our hospitality, our level of hospitality, based on what's going on around us. We respond to our present God. Clear implication here, our, our hospitality does not respond or diminish in the face of dangerous, risky, or frightening circumstances. 
even something as devastating as 9-11. Rather, it is actually our heart leads us directly into those dangerous, risky, and frightening situations. Hospitality is not a response to our circumstances. In fact, a Christian understanding of hospitality is one that may lead us right into the circumstances that will provoke that fear. Now, that may seems like a stretch, not how I tend to think about hospitality. If we have a list of fears of things that make us nervous, hospitality probably isn't on the list, right? Not at least in the top ten. Who's afraid of hospitality? We don't think of this call to welcome, to invite, to be open to others as all that radical, all that demanding, all that risky. It seems pretty safe. We might think of the hospitality industry, which would include, what, like hotels and cruise ships and resorts and not a lot that's dangerous about this. I'm not in the hospitality industry. If you are, maybe you can correct me on this. Or those of us who grew up in church, maybe we grew up, hospitality was a a spiritual gift. Uh, If you did, you were probably like me. I don't really want that one. Like, Holy Spirit, give me something exciting like leadership or prophecy or teaching or hospitality. Isn't that like bad dinners down in the church basement, you know? We have this notion of hospitality, I think, that is rather benign. And so this is my hurdle with you in this series is to, is to move hospitality from something that you just don't care about because you think is boring benign to something that frightens you because of what it demands of us. Fearless hospitality. You can tell that I don't want us to end on being frightened, but I think we have to at least get there to understanding what a hospitable life requires, what it demands of us. Not a safe way to live. It is not a boring way to live. And that it is, in fact, expected of those of us who follow Jesus. So the way that I want to do this this morning, the way that I want to begin is to just reflect on this passage that I read, this passage from Luke chapter 7, this story of Pharisee, of the woman, and of Jesus. And I want to walk through this because I think in this story, we get an idea of what Jesus may have in mind when he thinks about hospitality, when he invites us into living hospitable lives. Okay, so let's just jump into it. If you have your Bible, please keep it open as I'll be dipping in and out of different verses throughout this chapter. There are three main characters, as I said, in this story. Simon the Pharisee. You, you know who Pharisees are, right? We've talked about this as a... If you're not familiar with... Uh, Pharisees, they were a pretty dominant, powerful religious sect, a, a sect of Jews who believed that the, the way to earn God's favor was to remain ritually pure, right? To do no wrong. And so they had laws upon laws in order to do this, and they thought by their about the kingdom of God, the Messiah of God. Then we have, of course, Jesus. Jesus has been invited to this party, and he, he shows up. He's the guest of honor. Uh, and then we have the, 
the sinful woman, though I'm going to refer to her as the forgiven woman because I think that more captures the essence of this story. We'll learn more about her as we uh, go along. This and so the host, the, the Pharisee, has certain responsibilities to provide for his guests. And maybe uh, the setting strikes us as a little bit odd because this woman just bursts in in the middle of the party, right? This doesn't happen with us, does it? When was the last time someone just burst into a dinner party that you were throwing? Has it happened to you? No. But it's pretty common in Jesus' day. Minute. The Pharisee's house was probably fairly large, had a fairly large living space, and he probably had a long table, but it was a low table. People didn't sit in chairs, they reclined. And so Jesus, you can probably imagine him leaning on his, on his left elbow up to the table so that his right hand would be free to drink and to eat. Can you picture it? His feet would have been kind of tucked behind him. It's a good idea because people's feet got dirty wearing sandals in this day. So there would have been Jesus and Simon and then some other invited guests, but then the door would have remained open. This was kind of how it worked in that day in that culture. So other people from this town who knew about this party had heard about something rapidly just showed up if they wanted to. Now they didn't get a seat at the table. There wasn't any food or wine for them, but they could listen in to the conversation. Um Again, this isn't normal for us at dinner parties, but we maybe have experienced this a little bit in some uh, social settings. Uh, there was a, a coffee shop that I used to go to that I'm very sad is closed now. Bronzeville Coffee and Tea closed, which is... And I would work on sermons at, uh, you know, one of the little tables, and, and the coffee shop hadn't been... was the... I, you tell me. Okay. So, so there was the coffee bar then with these different stools in front of it, and behind the bar would be the employees or oftentimes the owner. And, and, and so the people right around the bar, they would always be talking and engaged. And Jennifer used to go there, right? So it was a, uh, it was um, it could be a boisterous atmosphere, right? Especially on the weekends, talking politics, talking or bemoaning, you know, Chicago sports teams, whatever the topic was. But it was an energetic conversation. Whoever was around the coffee bar was engaged in the conversation. Now, if you were like me and you were trying to do some work, you'd kind of be off to the side at a little table, which you couldn't help but listen in to the conversation and maybe chime in opinion every once in a while, but. We were sort of like those people on the outskirts. We weren't at the table engaged in the conversation, but we were there in the room. Can you picture? This is what's happening at this dinner party. There are these invited guests who are engaged in conversation, welcoming Jesus as their honored guest. And then there are other people like this woman who are in the room with them. Now, um, who, who, who here likes to throw parties for people, likes to have people in your home. Raise your, raise your hand. Have you ever had one just go horribly wrong? Raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to tell us the whole story, but it's always a risk, right? When you host something, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Like you can burn the food or the people you invite who you think are going to like each other, 
like get in an argument about politics or something. I mean, things can go wrong at dinner parties. I want to say that what goes wrong at this dinner party far exceeds anything you've ever experienced. This thing is a disaster, start to finish. It's a mess, and maybe it's hard for us to see this. So I want to kind of break it down here real quickly and just show you how this entire thing unravels. There's a purpose here for us to see what Jesus has in mind by hospitality. But first, let's, let's watch the train wreck develop. In verse 37, Luke tells us that a certain woman in that town who had lived a sinful life shows up. Now, this is a, not a large town, and Luke is saying that this is a woman who people knew. In this town, she had a reputation. Her reputation was that she had lived a sinful life. Who is this? This is the person who you least want showing up to your party. You all know that person. This is the person who you do not want to show up, and she shows up. She's a known sinner. Now imagine this. This is somebody who has not offered sacrifices for her forgiveness, for her atonement. She is in her sin, as it were. And now she's in the presence of a Pharisee whose entire job it is to remain distant from people like her so that he wouldn't be contaminated, wouldn't become impure. You can start to see how this thing is going to start unraveling. In verse 38, the woman begins weeping. Again, this is probably not the feel that you're going for when you're throwing a dinner party, right? At least not me. Nothing against weeping, but that's not, you know, you want laughing at dinner parties, right? Or stimulating conversation. And this woman begins to weep. But she doesn't just weep. Now she comes behind Jesus. Remember, he's leaning over the table. His feet are kicked out behind him. And she, she does three things, according to Luke. First, she begins to wet his feet with her tears. So this isn't just a couple tears. She's weeping. She's touching his feet. And in this day, only a servant could be asked to touch somebody's feet was a symbol of status, but certainly it was just gross, too. I mean, feet were covered with mud and dung and dirt and sweat. And she's washing his feet with her tears. And then, then she, she takes down her hair and she begins to wash, rub, clean Jesus' feet with her long hair. This is gross, Right? But it's far more than just gross. See, in this day, women always wore their hair up and covered when they were in public. Only little girls would have let their hair down or unmarried older women who weren't attached to a household. And that meant you were a prostitute. Little girls and older women who were prostitutes, were the only ones who would have had their hair uncovered. And so now this woman comes into a Pharisee's house, lets down her hair, acknowledging who she is, her life, a known sinner. She's weeping, she's washing his feet, drying them with her hair, and then she takes out an alabaster jar. This would have been a common jar to hold perfume in. Breaks it open and pours it all over Jesus' feet. And we know from other passages in the New Testament that this would have been considered a waste. A waste of something that could have 
Well, been used as perfume or sold for money. She wastes it all on his feet. What is she doing? She is breaking every social taboo. Again, maybe it doesn't strike us this way, but if you can imagine all of the things that we know you just don't do, she does them all. She does them all publicly in front of Simon the Pharisee and Jesus. But it gets worse. Verse 39. Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now here in this moment, we find that Simon's motives were never to honor Jesus as a guest. What is he doing? He's testing him. We all know the difference between a surprise party thrown in our honor and a job interview, right? It feels different to us. Jesus is at a job interview. He's being tested. On the surface, it's a party, it's an invitation, it's a welcome, it's hospitality. In reality, the Pharisee is judging, testing, checking him out. If this man were a prophet like I've heard, He wouldn't let her touch him. His motives are exposed. Continues to unravel. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. You see? You understand why that's weird? He He didn't say anything. Simon just thought something. Simon just thought, if this man were a prophet. And then Luke kind of, you know, ironically, and Jesus answered him. That's weird. Jesus is kind of like that friend of yours who just can't let anything slide. Right? Like you're out with your friend and someone makes that like kind of political comment and you know, you're like, come on, man, not now. Don't do it this time. And your friend's like, what do you mean by those people? You're like, oh, here we go, here we go. Right? This is, this is Jesus. Nobody knew what the Pharisee was thinking. Nobody knew his motives. Jesus could have let it slide. Instead, Luke kind of snidely says, eh, Jesus answered him. He answered his thought. He provokes him. And then in verse 41 and 42, Jesus starts to tell a story. And, and, and imagine now, this is pretty awkward. The whole situation is just bad. It's just uncomfortable. It's, mm, you just, you're looking for a distraction. And Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. And I'm guessing everybody around the table is like, oh, good. Like an antidote or a joke or one of those crazy parables you're always telling. You know, like finally we're going to get distracted from this awkwardness. And he tells the story and it's, Uh, It's pretty straightforward, right? It's not like one of those parables where you have to really work hard to understand it. It's, you know, it's just all out there. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Simon, you know who you're like. Simon, there's two people in this story. Guess which one you are. The one who doesn't love, Simon. You're the one who doesn't know how to love. That's who you are, Simon. And maybe this seems like kind of a little pot shot, but this is, this is at the core of Simon's identity. Simon is a Pharisee. Like all good Jews would have gotten up every morning to say the Shema, this, 
beautiful Old Testament Hebrew pair would have gone to bed at night saying the same thing. Hear, O Israel, our Lord. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love, love, love. Simon, do you know who you're like? You're like the one who doesn't know how to love. Simon, all your prayers, your identity about loving God with everything you are, Simon, you're like the guy who doesn't know how to love. Can you tell like how this, is, this dinner party is not going according to plan? It's awkward. It's bad. And then Jesus, he's like, okay, so I've called you out. I've told you a story. Let me break it down for you in case you don't know how I'm putting you on the spot here. He says, Simon. You did not. I came. I I accepted your invitation. You welcomed me. And you did not provide any water for my feet. You did not greet me with a kiss. A pretty standard greeting in that day. You did not anoint my head with oil. But Simon, guess who did all those things? Simon, guess who in this room did all these things? But she did, Jesus says. She provided water for my feet. She greeted me with a kiss. She poured perfume, anointing my feet. This party is an absolute disaster. It's awkward. I imagine it being pretty quiet. People listening to Jesus, wondering where he's going with this. What I want to suggest to us this morning is is what appears so bad on the surface, what appears to be like a failure on the surface, what appears to be maybe Jesus responding to his circumstances is in fact Jesus intentionally flipping the script. And saying, yeah, Simon, I know that you think this is how hospitality is supposed to work, but I actually, Simon, the one who really honored me today, the one who really loved me today, the one who really received me today, the one who really hosted me today, Simon, was not you. It was this woman. This woman who you wrote off, who you have ostracized, who you have cast out. It's her. There's something really important for us as a church to see about hospitality and about the kind of hospitality that calls us into risky, dangerous ways of living in this example, in the way that Jesus flips this script. And in order for us to see this, what I want to do is I want to look at the two main roles in every situation involving hospitality. There's two main roles. You know what they are? You're either the guest or the host. Now, maybe I'm forgetting something, but I'm pretty sure in every hospitality situation, there's going to be a guest, there's going to be a host. If you throw a dinner party, you are the host. If you're a doctor or a nurse working in a hospital, you're, you're a host. The patient is your guest. When you invite somebody into your home, that person is your guest. Every situation involving hospitality involves both a guest and a host. And you and I tend to think about these in fairly static sorts of ways. You're always the guest or you're always the host, depending on the situation, right? Like, if I invite you over to dinner in my house and I've been cooking and planning a meal, you don't get to show up and say, hey, this is what I want to eat tonight. Start going through my cupboards, pulling out pans. It doesn't work that way, right? 
If you're a patient in the hospital and the nurse walks in, you don't get to jump out of bed and say, hey, come on, sit down. Tell me what's wrong with you. How can I help you? That doesn't, right? That's not how it works, Renee, right? That would be weird. You don't get to do that. We tend to think of these roles, host and guest, as fairly static, except when they're not. And what we see in this story today, and what's very important for us to see as a biblical concept of hospitality, is that Jesus, the woman, and Simon, each are the guest and each are the host. In this story, each of these three main characters play the role of guest, play the role of host. Let me show you what I mean. Let's begin with the role of, of guest. Let's start with Simon because he's maybe the least obvious guest in this, right? He's the Pharisee. He's the powerful one. He's the respected leader. He's the one who initiates this whole thing. So it seems like, okay, he can only be the host, right? But let me tell you something. The minute that Jesus answers his thoughts, it's the minute it becomes clear who has the real power in this situation. The minute that Jesus forgives this woman's sins is the minute that we see that, hmm, uh, Simon, you're a guest here as well. Simon, you actually don't have all the power in this situation. Simon, you're actually not in control of this. Simon, this dinner party isn't going to go according to your plans. Simon, maybe begrudgingly, unknowingly, plays the role of a guest because he's in the presence of Christ. And then, of course, there is Jesus. Now, Jesus, it's initially clear to us that he is a guest. He accepts the invitation of Simon. He shows up, sits down to dinner. He's probably talking. He's eating. He's playing the good role of guest. And I think that you and I like this. I think we like the idea of Jesus being a good guest. We have spiritual language to talk about this when when somebody is considering becoming a Christian, we might say, you just need to invite Jesus into your heart. And there's some really important truth to this, right? But what is this? This is Jesus as my guest. This is Jesus coming when I beckon, when I ask Jesus to come. But how, how is it possible? How is it possible for you to host Jesus? How is it possible for Jesus to be your guest? After all, Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. How how is it that this one can be your guest? Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Word of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. And you're just going to invite Jesus into a little corner of your heart? Jesus is the bread of heaven, the light of the world, our high priest, the Holy One, the Lion of Judah. It seems impossible for this one to be our guest. The Bible says that Jesus is our deliverer, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the righteous judge of the world. Is this who you're inviting into your heart? This is who is your guest? Really? How is this possible? 
According to the Scriptures, the only way that it is ever possible for Jesus to play the role of guest is when he chooses to. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus taking on our flesh. This is Jesus emptying himself, making himself nothing, Paul says, living among us. This is Jesus becoming like us so that we can welcome him, so that he can be our guest. The only way that the second member of the Trinity can ever be hosted by you is that he chose to be hosted by you. Amen? But let's be really, really clear about this. Jesus will never be a predictable guest. Amen? Jesus will never be a safe guest. I mean, he makes a mess of this dinner party. He speaks what's on his mind. He takes control of the agenda. It becomes his dinner party real quickly. And so when you and I welcome Jesus, we are welcoming all of him. Jesus will never be content to make you look like a good host. Kalia, this was a great meal that you made me. Thank you for inviting me in. It was so nice of you to have me over. Jesus doesn't play like that. Jesus is never going to be content to make you just look like a good host. Jesus is never going to be content to just stay in one little corner of your life. Some of you live in homes that have a guest room. Jesus isn't interested in the guest room. Jesus is not going to be content to say, yeah, I'll come into the part of your life where I'll give you peace and contentment. But yeah, you keep doing your things with the finances and the bedroom. Jesus isn't that kind of guest. When we talk about inviting Jesus, welcoming Jesus, we need to be very clear about this. So we have Simon the guest, we have Jesus the guest, and then we have the forgiven woman. Let's call her the uninvited and unwelcome guest. Of everybody in the room, she is the most trusting guest. She is convinced that Jesus' hospitality is great enough for her. You notice who she goes to? She doesn't go to Simon. She doesn't kind of pay homage, thank you for letting me come into your house. She goes right to Jesus. She trusts him. She knows that that he is her true host. Her sinful reputation does not stop her. The chattering voices that are talking as she lets down her hair does not stop her. The taboo against a known sinner touching a rabbi like Jesus was not going to stop her. Love, in this case, overcame all of her fear. I don't think she was naive. She was a savvy person. She, she, she wasn't underestimating the cost of accepting Jesus' welcome, of being Jesus' guest. She knew that people would talk. She knew the social consequences of stepping out of the shadows in this way. And yet for her, it paled. It paled in comparison to the love and the acceptance and the transformation that she encountered in Jesus. So let me ask you, before we talk about host, what is it that is keeping you from welcoming Jesus like this forgiven woman? 
she had all kind of really good reasons why she might have stayed outside of the home that day. She had all kinds of really good, really legitimate reasons why she would not have thrown herself at Jesus and honored him in this way. All kinds of fears that could have kept her back. And love overcame all of them. So, so what is it for us? What is it for you this morning that is holding you back? What are the things, if they're fears, if they're anxieties, if they're issues about our reputation, what it will require us to give up? What are the things that are keeping us from throwing ourselves at the mercy of Jesus in the way she does? Simon watches all of this go down, and he holds back. Not me, he says. I've got too much at stake. I've got a reputation. Not me. Is that us? Is that you? What is it? What is it that is keeping you from welcoming Jesus the way this woman does, trusting him that she will be received as his honored Beloved guest. Let's talk about the role of host. Again, let's start with Simon. I hope I've made it clear. Simon is a terrible host. He's really bad at this hosting thing. He's testing Jesus. He's not honoring him. He's judging Jesus. He's withholding standard hospitality from Jesus. He's he's a bad host. And yet Jesus still shows up. Let me, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think that on his way home after the party, Jesus was like, oh, I totally wish I would have known what a horrible host Simon was going to be. Like he's, you know, bemoaning with Peter. Did you know that that was his motives? Do you know that he was testing? I thought he was totally like honoring me. I can't believe that guy. Probably not, right? Jesus knew what he was getting into. Jesus knew what Simon was about. Jesus knew what the atmosphere was going to be like. Jesus knew the testing that was going on. Jesus knew the lack of hospitality that was present, and he still showed up. I'm really thankful for Simon because I'm way more like Simon most of the time than I am like that woman. I can relate to his cynicism. I can relate to his skepticism. I can relate to his judgmental attitude. I can relate to him like holding back, like, I don't really know if I would. Thank God for Simon. Because Jesus still shows up. The offer of hospitality is half-hearted. There are hidden motives all throughout. There is skepticism. There is, if you do this, then I'll do this all over this thing. And Jesus still shows up. Maybe it's just me. That's good, good news to my heart today. And then there's Jesus as the host. We've mentioned this already. Simon is allowed to host by the true host, Jesus. The forgiven woman recognizes Jesus as the true host. Here's what I want us to see about the way Jesus plays this role of host. 
despite what it appeared to be on the surface, despite the fact that the Pharisees seemed to be in charge, the one with power, the one with control, despite maybe evidence to the contrary, Jesus was always the true host in this situation. I want us to consider the cross today as evidence Regardless of who seems to be in control, regardless of who seems to have power over us, Jesus has always been the one who can truly host us. Because it's at the cross, right? It's at the cross where it would seem that all power has been stripped away, all ability for Jesus to welcome us, to invite us in, and yet it's the cross which becomes God's eternal welcome sign to us. It's the cross that for all time stands as evidence of God's eternal invitation to us. This moment where it would seem that all power was stripped away, all ability for Jesus to invite, to welcome us, is that same moment where we forever know that God welcomes us. Amen? The cross is God's eternal welcome sign. There's an old hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Some of you know it. One of the verses says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come. Invitation. Welcome. But then there's a a verse later on that's maybe not as familiar to us. Listen to these words. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Will this not suffice? Is this not enough evidence, enough proof of God's eternal welcome for you? There are some of us here um, who are in situations, in workplaces, in families where there are those claiming power over us, control over us, who do not have our good in mind. There, there are those of us who carry baggage from the past that continues to influence in such, in, in us in such ways that they exert this power and control over us. And the cross, cross, is evidence that despite all of this and despite what it may seem, Jesus is in fact the one with power and control. Jesus is in fact the one able to welcome and host and invite you. The cross of Jesus is the door of heaven thrown open wide. The cross of Jesus is is our unexpired invitation to the banquet. The cross of Jesus is our heavenly Father, arms thrown open wide. cross of Jesus is our eternal welcome sign. And I think it's in this last person, the forgiven woman, where we really understand, we can really see just the implications of this. Because she gets this. She grasps it. It has ravished her heart. So that nothing will keep her from Jesus. She runs to him despite, again, every social taboo. She, she, she honors him despite everything that people will say. She has never known true hospitality. She's never been welcomed. She certainly never had the opportunity to show a welcome like this. 
no rabbi would have ever received her as Jesus received her. And so we get that, right? We, we get that Jesus is so kind, so loving, so merciful, so graceful, that he would receive her as his guest. Yeah, we get that. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But it's more than that. Because the woman isn't just the guest, she becomes the host. What does she do? She does everything that Simon should have done. Every act of hospitality that Simon should have done, this woman takes on and does. And so the gospel of Jesus for this woman is, yes, you are welcomed, you are invited, you are safe, you are loved as my guest, and you are empowered. You are breathed new life into so that you now, woman with a sinful reputation, can host the Son of God. Do you see? Just at least nod your head if you're with me, church. Help me out. The gospel of Jesus isn't just charity welcoming us in. The gospel of Jesus is justice changing our lives. Empowering this woman who had been completely ostracized, completely written off. You are worthy to host the Son of God, to anoint him, to wash his feet, to host him when Simon wouldn't do it. Is this good news to anybody this morning? This is great news, church. But it's frightening, too. Because when we talk about hospitality, we're not just talking about, you know, hey, come to our church and we'll smile at you. We'll give you a visitor card. The vision of hospitality that we see in this passage far transcends that. The vision of hospitality that we see in this passage is one that calls us to love each other in these sorts of ways, in ways that kind of upend situations of power and not being in power, of host and of guest. We are these things with each other. We host each other and we are guests to each other. Not only that, but the vision of hospitality in this passage is one that pushes us out of these doors, not content to just ask people to come to us, but one that causes us to go, to leave. Jesus shows up despite what he knows is going to happen here. Jesus places himself in the midst of a messy situation. The hospitality of God causes us to go, to leave, to find ourselves in the midst of chaos, of brokenness. There's nothing safe about this kind of hospitality. The next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about this. What does it look like for us to be a hospitable people with each other? What does it look like for us to be a proactively hospitable people who are sent, who go, who are not content to remain? Uh, but it starts with us, church. And it starts with us coming to grips that in Jesus, we have been shown all the hospitality of heaven. It begins with us being able to accept this invitation to be known, to be loved by Jesus. And more than that, more than that, it involves us being empowered to be hosts to Christ. Do we we see ourselves that way, church? 
Do you see yourself that way? Has Christ so transformed you that you understand that not just that, 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 that Jesus welcomes you, but that Jesus has done such a transforming work in your life that you are now his host, that you welcome him? into every aspect of your life, into everywhere that God has called you to be, that there's nowhere that you go where you do not invite Jesus, do not welcome Jesus to come to? Has this happened for you? What parts of your life are off limit to Jesus? What parts of your life are you unwilling to host Jesus in? God, thank you for welcoming me. I'm very grateful for that. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready for you to come here yet. Or I don't think you can handle coming here yet. I guarantee all of us in the room today have those areas in our life where we have put up some kind of a barrier. For some of us, it's just the fact that we haven't come to Christ yet. We've heard this call. We've heard this invitation. But we're kind of like Simon. We feel like we have too much to lose, too much of a reputation, like it's too much of a risk. Others of us, though, we understand, we've been called, we, we are glad to be God's guest. Hosting, welcoming Jesus, being the one who makes the presence of Christ known everywhere we go as his host. And that's too much. But if we're going to move hospitality from being boring, if we're going to move hospitality from a reaction to our circumstances where we'll often cocoon ourselves in the face of danger. If we're going to move from this to a hospitality that responds to God's presence with us, that responds to the power of God with us, that responds in such a way that we welcome, we invite each other, yes. And those who feel so far away from If we're going to move in this direction, church, it's going to start with us. So we're going to sing. We're going to sing here in a minute. Uh, And I'm going to ask that, uh, I'm going to ask that you open your hearts up in this way. I'm going to ask that you hear Jesus offering, not just to be your host, but to be your guest. ask that the Holy Spirit of God would help you to respond to that voice of Jesus, offering yes to be your guest. And for some of you, please say yes, but also to be the one who empowers you to host him. So let me pray for us and let's worship together. So our God, we come before you now as those who maybe only have a glimpse of the welcome sign, only have a glimpse of your invitation. So we pray that the cross would now become for us evidence of your eternal welcome. I'd like to place before you, church, this morning this invitation. invitation to say yes to Jesus. I want to ask that whatever it is that has held you back in the past, 
whatever concern for your reputation, whatever fear of what may have to go in your life. I'm going to ask that you hold that up for a second and, and allow it to fade away in the light of the eternal welcome and embrace of God that is available to you today. I want you to consider, again, maybe for the first time, the fact that the God of the universe, the God of heaven, welcomes you. Regardless of where you are, regardless of where you've been, regardless of how strong your faith feels to you, this God welcomes you. This God is your host. So could I ask you, those of you who have not accepted this rather simple but profound invitation to consider doing so today, that you would open your heart, open your mind, open your life, open your will up to this God, asking that Jesus would become your host. Jesus would become your Lord, that Jesus would become your Savior, that Jesus would take over control of your life. like to ask all of us as a church to to consider those places in our hearts, those places in our will, places in our finances, in our relationships where we have not been willing to host our Savior. We've not been willing to bring our Savior. We've not been willing to acknowledge the presence and the power of our Savior. Where are those places this morning, church? the places that Jesus is asking you to bring him as his host? What is the relationship that he wants to be a part of? What is the looming decision in your life that he wants to be a part of? What is the addiction that you cannot shake that he wants to be a part of? What is the the part of your, your past that just won't go away that he wants to be a part of? What is the lack of passion in your life that he wants to be a part of? The lack of purpose in your life that he wants to be a part of? Where is the confusion about your calling, your job, your vocation that he wants to be a part of? Where is the trouble with your neighbors that he wants to be a part of? Where is the violence on your block in our city that he wants to be brought into? This is the profound truth of the gospel that at the cross we are received as guests and then empowered to host our Savior. That we as the church are the presence of Christ in our world. So I I want to ask that as the worship team leads us in this final song, I want to invite the altar Uh, to be open for you, the cross to be open. We're going to stand as we sing. And for those of you who just need to to, to symbolically take a step forward today, as the guest or the host of Christ, I want to invite you to come forward.
to worship from the altar, either on your knees or standing, lifting your hands in silence, however you wish, however you wish to worship. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be at the cross acknowledging before my Savior my gratitude that I am his guest and my need for him to empower me again to host him, to bring him into all of my life, into all of my world. I invite you to join me. God, empower us now. Refresh our spirits now. Speak truth to our hearts now, God. Allow us today to again receive your welcome, your invitation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please stand, church. Welcome that remains open. I praise God for a door that does not close. Praise God for a new life that is possible now. Our worship team is going to continue to to kind of lead us in worship. If you want some prayer this morning, come forward. Love to pray for you today. Otherwise, please join us for lunch. Stick around. Love to get to know you, eat with you, break bread with you. Now receive the benediction. God, send us now as those who have tasted and seen what it is to be guests of Almighty God. Send us out as those who have been given new life in you and who now host this living God to our world. us again and again this week such that we would be overwhelmed by this truth and empowered by it. Again, I pray that there would be no fear, no anxiety, no sin, no temptation, no trouble that would overwhelm the eternal welcome of your cross for us this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Go in peace, church. Go in peace.